It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Good evening, everyone. I'm Bat Weems Guy here for another episode and here to bail me out on a Saturday night at 943 Eastern Time because my original guest for this week fell through, but that doesn't make him any less valuable. It's Mr. Mark Fricky. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing fine, Lee. How are you doing? Doing well, Mark. Uh, the audience, you may recognize his name and his voice. He was on our episode this past week on the, the question of certifying instructors. Uh, that same text thread <laughs> seems to be a, a, a very good topic generator because we got today on the discussion of uh, muzzle discipline in that text thread. And Mark is here to talk to us today about muzzle discipline and some various concepts that go along with that. But Mark, before we do that, if you would introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Uh, as Lee said, my name is Mark Fricky. I'm a retired sergeant from the Prescott, Arizona Police Department. And I did my 20 years here, and then I had four years as a cop in Nebraska and four years as a cop in the Air Force. Um, before I retired, um, I went to work as a fire instructor. Uh, in fact, I was fire instructor, chief range master for our department for 18 years. I worked for Arizona Post as a train and trainer, designed our two-week fire instructor program along with a bunch of other guys and taught it. Uh, worked uh, for another individual as a fire instructor for several years before I started my business in 1992. And then in 97, I started to work for a national uh, firearms training company or organization rather that trains police officers and instructors around the country. And that's what I've done since. So I've been a fire instructor since 1980 and I've been a trainer trainer since 1986. And it's, it's kind of what I do and it's it's kind of my life. There's not a day that nobody has something to do with guns, so it is. is. All right. Um, what generated our discussion of muzzle discipline today was the discussion of an individual that went to shoot an IDPA match, and he applied the rule of not muzzling anything that you don't intend to shoot during the match. And so he was diverting his muzzle around no shoots, et cetera. And anytime that happens at an IDPA match or the like, it always generates a lot of discussion. Well, we got to discuss it in this text thread. And, you know, there are a few instructors out there that are insistent upon that and that they do stress it in their safety briefings. But I've also been in classes where it's mentioned in the safety brief and then during the training, where students are sleeping, non-shoots, and, and the like. To me, that violates and just invalidates your safety brief. What do you think about that? I agree. Um, you know, I'm, I've, I'm old gun sight. If I didn't mention that, I'm old gun sight. I went to gun sight in 1978, and Colonel Cooper himself taught me. And prior to that, I had been a cop, uh, like I said, uh, in the Air Force, which, you know, we really didn't discuss anything on that line. Um, and then a couple of years, the cop in uh, Nebraska, so when I went to gun site, I learned the four rules of firearm safety and the instructors I had were outstanding. Uh, a guy named Bruce Nelson, another guy named Barry Worrell, just were outstanding instructors along with uh, Colonel Cooper himself. Mm -hmm. And when Colonel Cooper was talking about the rules, uh, the four rules that he developed, rule two kind of stood out in my mind as made perfect sense that you don't point you at anything you're not willing to destroy. And 
So I applied that my whole career since that time. And I applied it in my training. I teach that rule uh, exclusively through a variety of different techniques. And it's a, it's a basic rule. If, it, if you don't need to shoot it, you don't put your gun at it. If it isn't a threat to you, you don't put your gun at it. And yet we as police officers, and I'll even say as fire instructors, seem to violate that rule all the time. And then in competition, it's a piece of paper versus a person. So therefore they don't take it like that, but they're still trying to say that it's practical and alike. So a lot of different uh, thoughts on it as far as what's, how that's evolved through it, how we've taught it. And I'm just seeing so many police officers today that as soon as they draw their gun, they're looking over the top of the gun and it's pointed right at a subject, even though they're not justified in shooting. And I don't know what that stems from other than the lack of training on their basic part of it that they didn't get when they were uh, officers. People didn't stress it. And like you, I've been to classes where a safety brief is given, but it really isn't stressed. And it isn't stressed to the point of where people don't do it. They don't yell at them. Um, I'm blessed to be in Arizona because we've had excellent training in that line. And we do a target discrimination shoot. Uh, it's mandated by the state every year and has to include a no-shoot target, a non-shoot threat target, something like with a club or something that's far enough away that you're not immediately justified in shooting them, and then obviously a shoot target. And if you draw your gun on the friendly, the non-shoot, you fail. That's just a simple fail. There's no qualms about it. You're done. Uh, and you got to do that, do, do that drill over again, remediate it and do the drill over again. So... It's been pretty strict on it. And I said, they were strict on it at dump site. I was happy to see that. I just wish we had more instructors around the country that would be more strict on that too. And I think some of it has come from thinking that they can't, they got to be up on the target in order to get their hits fast. And we've been able to prove, and I do this every class I teach, uh, especially instructor schools, that an officer coming from what we refer to as the ready position, guys I call us the guard, um, but the muzzle down about 45 degrees with your finger off the trigger and straight along the frame that you can come up on target, get a good solid hits at a normal distance you consider a gunfight distances and not have any degradation in time. In fact, if anything, it gives you more time in the sense of you can actually make good decisions uh, from that. And over the years, we've done a lot of different things with it. And things have evolved, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, the different techniques and stuff that are out there. Prior to uh, my working for the national organization and coming up with that, we used to teach to press ready, where we just brought the gun straight down when we had a innocent person or a free, you know, a, a non-shoot target, straight down with our arms straight, and then we come back up to ready position once we were clear. Uh, but there are other techniques out there we can use, you know, there's Sewell and uh, the safety circle, and you know the temple index i mean there's all kinds of places now to put the gun where we're not pointing at people but yet it seems like when we have somebody that is a potential bad guy those rules don't apply yeah got if your, your people are pointing a gun at them so that's kind of where we are on it yeah uh my friend eric gillhouse pointed me towards a study here i guess last year sometime about an organization that had tested from different ready positions and then having the test subjects, you know, come out with an item out of their pocket or from behind their back. Sometimes it was a cell phone. Sometimes it was a firearm and the like. And 
the people that had muzzle on target were more likely to make a mistake of fact shooting than the people that were in a good muzzle off target ready position. So I can, I can go back to that from a, from a, a uh, perspective of we did the same thing. And what I did is I took a 12 volt battery and I had a red light and a green light and I put them up on each edge of a target. And I had people uh, at the ready, had people with their fingers off triggers, had people with fingers on triggers, had people pointed at the targets. And the red light was a no shoot and the green light was a shoot. It's that simple. If the gun was pointed at the target and we would give them some stimuli, you know, yelling at them, screaming at them, all that, and we hit the red light more often than not, they pulled the trigger because the light came on and they reacted and they pull the trigger because they want to beat the time. They had to go shoot it fast and they had to get it under a second. So they did this. So we found that to be there. The people at the ready position, when they would respond up, they'd start to, they'd see them start to move the muzzle up and then they would have that time to analyze it, that quarter second to analyze what it is, what they were seeing and then shut it down. And I can say, I, I don't remember anybody ever shooting when they were at the ready, but I do remember several people shooting when they were there. And I'm familiar with that study. I read the article on it also, and it showed a lot of good information that needs to be done more research on. So it is something that is uh, definitely a phenomenon, but it has to do with human reaction time to it. Force Science Institute has done a lot of stuff on that too. And then of course you got your trigger finger discipline, which goes with it. So this my standard line is it's muzzle discipline and trigger finger. If you have both of those, those are your two safety checks in place, it's difficult for you to hurt an innocent person if you have both of those in place, no matter what happens to you. My typical way of explaining it to students is, uh, as far as muzzle and finger, if muzzle is on target, it's okay for finger to be on trigger. Yes, if sir. muzzle is off target, your finger shouldn't be on trigger. That's the way right, so then, right, so, so then it's the discussion of when is it acceptable for the muzzle to be on target. And so I asked the question, so what, what's your legal justification for actually pointing a firearm at someone? And usually I get people kind of know the answer, but they start guessing at it and saying things like, oh, they're a threat to me or whatever. Well, here's the simple working definition. If you're not legally justified to shoot them, you're not legally justified to have a firearm pointed at them. That is true. Uh, police agencies, I'm sorry, let me back up. State laws in many states, I'm not sure how it is in your state. Uh, have exemption for police officers in the performance of their duties to what would be a violation of law to do that, to do that. But the definition that comes down is very ambiguous as to what is in line of duty. If you're, again, not entitled to shoot this person, if this person is not going to be shot this moment, then why are we allowed to point our guns at them? And I'm, right. I'm of the same mindset in there. And I know I hear arguing all the time. Well, you, you know, you were you were a you know a small department officer. You know, in the big cities, it's different. I don't think so because I've talked to other professional fire instructors from big cities, and they happen to agree with me that yeah. this not it is not something that is universal to small towns um, and yeah. small departments. So I anyway, know it's it's going to be a long debate. Uh, we need to have the debate. We need to do it because. We're being held accountable because we have now all the accountability from um, the body cameras, surveillance cameras, and people look at this going like, why are you doing this? And of course, now we have activists 
uh, prosecutors who would like to prosecute police officers for their actions if uh, they think there's anything in violation with that, which I'm not saying they shouldn't. You know, if you shoot a person that you're not supposed to shoot, then by God, you should be prosecuted if that's what if that's what's necessary to do. Um, I have no compunction about that. So we need to be held accountable ourselves, but we need to police ourselves better in that line. And most officers are not doing this maliciously. They're not. I don't believe they are. They're doing it out of improper training from their academies, from their firearms instructors, and what they see on TV, Hollywood and television. I mean, the things when we see those people do, and I like those shows, and I laugh at them, and you know, I like those you know cliche lines, you know, that everybody likes to make my day and all that. But in reality, I think you can't do that stuff. We're not talking about somebody you know on a movie set who theoretically is going to walk away afterwards. We're talking about somebody getting their life lost and you having to suffer the consequences. And officers are prosecuted. We've had officers prosecuted here in Arizona uh, for it. Um, there's some, some pretty dramatic incidences where uh, that has occurred over the years. Um, one in particular I can think of was uh, one of our high patrol officers who was involved in a high-speed wreck. He was why he faced high-speed chase rather, and the vehicle wrecked. And he ran up and grabbed the passenger of the car, a 17-year-old by the nap of the neck, pulling him out of the car and sticking his uh, pistol to his head, his semi-auto, which he had just gone to, with a 14-pound double-action trigger. And apparently, the kid didn't get down far enough or fast enough for him, so he pushed him down and had his finger on the trigger, and the gun pointed his head and killed that kid. Mm. It was prosecuted for manslaughter. Um, it was through the efforts of ILFE at that time and our own state instructor association and Dr. Anaka, who we've, uh, we'll tell, we can talk about, that did a study on why we pull triggers on guns when we're not meant to and we didn't want to, uh, were they able to dismiss the charges. And the state of Arizona wrote a huge check. And I guess I always use the example of this in one of my classes, is, but there's no amount of money that the state of Arizona could have given that family to replace their son. And he was truly an innocent kid. He was picked up by his friend who bid him time he was in a stolen vehicle until the, the police started chasing him. So this officer, as far as I remember, never went back to work again either. He left because he had teenage sons of his own and he realized the fact that he took an innocent life. And that's not something any of us as police officers want to do. We don't want to take an innocent life. But there's case after case studies have done this uh, with with muzzles being pointed at people. So, you mentioned Dr. Anoda's study. Would you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, he did a research study back in the '80s to show why police officers pull triggers on guns, and it really wasn't in relation to the police officer pulling triggers on guns, but it related to it. That there were three I would call them autonomic reflexes, uh, things we have no control over that we're under stress that will happen. Uh, if your finger's on the trigger of your gun and you are startled, your muscles contract and going into fight or flight. And as a result of that, you have no control over it. And if your finger's on the trigger, you're going to pull the trigger of that gun and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And you know, people can generate well over hundred foot pounds of energy in their hands and they'll go through any trigger that's out there. Then there was a balance disruption where if you lose your balance, uh, again, your muscles contract in order to protect yourself from falling or to defend your body as you fall. And if you get your finger on the trigger, you're going to pull the trigger for that muscle contraction. And then limb interaction, and sometimes called sympathetic reflex, where what you do under stress with one hand, you will do with the same 
force in the leg with the other hand. So if I grab onto a doorknob or I grab onto somebody, my other hand's gonna convulse the same way um, and I'm gonna set off that gun if my finger's on the trigger. And these have been scientifically tested, court testified to, these are not theories of people, they're there. And I've got example after example after example around the country. Uh, a good friend of mine, Artie Stallman, who worked with me with the Arizona Post, who was a police officer and a fire instructor for Phoenix PD, probably did one of the better studies of that through Dr. Anaka's uh, research and took examples around the country of where this has happened. And I use four classic ones uh, from him and then two others that uh, I read from articles and the like. And that BPS officer, one of them that we talked about, another one was two senior SWAT officers who are uh, walking back from a high stress SWAT call One's got a shotgun, pop shotgun, safety off the finger inside the trigger guard, not supposed to be on the trigger, but inside the trigger guard. The other with a 2237 automatic rifle. And as you're walking back, they're side by side. The officer with the shotgun goes up across a small ditch. His foot slips. As he does, he sets off Mr. 12 gauge next to his partner's head. Well, when 12 gauge goes off next to your head, it's pretty loud. He has startle effect. The round with the shotgun went in the air, and the round that the officer was fired with a 223, went through the back window of the patrol car where the suspect was handcuffed and seated. Fortunately for both officers, the bad guy did not get killed uh, and suffered some injuries, but that's one. Um, another one was when I read that a police officer goes home at the, uh, I'm trying back up. Police officer and his wife go out for an evening uh, because their daughter had gone over to a friend's house for sleepovers, hence they had a night off, so they went out. Come back home, dad realizes somebody's in the house, not supposed to be, gets his guns, goes to start searching his own home. While he's searching, what he didn't know was it was his daughter and her friend. She had forgotten something, goes back to the house, sees mom and dad pull the driveway and says to her friend, let's scare dad. And they proceed to hide in the closet. And probably when making some noise, again, the article didn't get in depth as to why he opened the closet door, but he did. She yelled at him or startled him. And when he did, he killed his own child. Mm has to live with that. Um, another one is a officer out in California, a SWAT call who was armed with a shotgun and on the raid, an 11 year old kid was put down the hallway. He goes to step across the small child, the uh, 11 year old, and has a shotgun, his foot slips, and he sets off his 12 gauge from um, balance disruption and kills the 11 year old. So there's, there's cases after cases all over the country where this occurred. And this stems from the two things we talked about, which is muzzle discipline of not letting that muzzle cross people we don't intend to shoot and keeping the finger off the trigger until we need to shoot. So. Right. And all of this carries over to the private citizen as well. Absolutely. It does. There's no question about it. You know, police officers you know, have, again, state law backing them that in performance of their duties, which again, is an ambiguous term in there. But that does not apply to civilians. And if civilians point guns at people, my, my state of Arizona, for example, if a citizen were to make a mistake but draws a gun to a ready position and doesn't muzzle somebody with it, then they're probably going to look at a disorderly conduct, which could still be a felony for recklessly handling and displaying a firearm, but likely will be reduced down to a misdemeanor, which won't ruin their lives for that. But the same token, they draw that same gun and they point it at somebody's chest and are not justified. They're going to be charged with aggravated assault, which could put them in prison for many years. 
So yeah, it does apply to the civilians just as much, which is why I stress that every time I teach a class. And my rule too, um, I elaborated a little more in saying, you know, that if it's not a threat, it's not a target and we don't point our gun and it's that simple. I mean, I try to make it that simple for people so they can understand. <laughs> and then I enforce it during training. If we're training and we've got a drill that has potentially innocent people in it, and they muzzle in as a person, they're called on it and they're tested on it. And we test them to make sure they don't do that. This is in my instructor schools or my operator schools. It doesn't matter which one it is because I don't want people to get themselves in trouble by, by muzzling the wrong person and having to live with it. They accidentally did shoot somebody. Uh, earlier you mentioned the concept of the safety circle. Could you go into sure. that? Sure. Um, the organization I work for, uh, had an instructor who was kind of my mentor um, and he and I were discussing about muzzle discipline uh, and having it. He had the same feelings that I were. He had not been a police officer, but had been uh, in a foreign uh, military service and then immigrated to the United States and was working for this organization at the same time. And we're talking about how to draw the gun out from things like a shoulder holster and like where you didn't let the muzzle cross your body parts or other body parts of other people and you kept the muzzle down. Well, then we started saying, well, why couldn't we do that with you know, the uh, idea of having the gun there when you had to turn versus sweeping people with the muzzle? And so the safety circle concept stemmed from a safe place to point the muzzle. As I said, we used to use teach to press ready, which would just be the gun held straight down. You straighten your, straighten your arms up instead of having your typical weaver type stance of a ready position or an isosceles ready position at 45 degrees. You just let the muzzle come down to your feet and it works and it still works today. However, it's a lot of real estate to cover to get back up on target should you have to do it. The safety circle from the handgun perspective took out that you were at your ready position, whether again, you're a Sosleys or a Weaver, it doesn't matter. And instead of bringing the gun straight down, you simply bent your wrist down so the muzzle went vertical and then you would turn and move and then make Come, maybe come back up to ready when it was appropriate and you come back to the ready position there. It's unfortunately got bastardized by people when they were calling it the circle of safety and they were doing these complete 360 degree circles theoretically after shooting a suspect, you know, and they're looking around for snipers on the roof line. And I mean, it was just this, this dance that was absolutely nothing but a stupid range drill that didn't have really real practicality to the street where the safety circle concept was such that the muzzles don't point toward good people, whether it's an officer or a grandma or a Walmart parking lot. And I talk about this in my classes. I probably go longer at a lot of classes than some of our other instructors that work for the same organization do because I believe in it so much. And we then do drills specifically designed around it to work it. Uh, you see people that say, wow, that, you know, that's the way you get your gun taken away from you. That's not what you use the safety circle for. You don't use it to confront suspects. You're not standing there, don't move, don't move with your gun pointed down at the ground. You do it at a ready position like you normally would to be able to respond to the threat. It's when there's good guys around that you go to it so you don't point your gun at them. So then after the safety circle, you apply that now to a long gun. It's the same thing. The gun's in the shoulder pocket. You got the ready position. And then you just simply lay the gun flat across your body, just drop the muzzle down. It really doesn't leave the shoulder pocket. It comes right back up very fast. But it's only there long enough to so you don't muzzle people or if an officer's got to walk in front of you or something of this nature, 
it just so you don't muzzle people. Probably three, four years after we were teaching the safety circle concept with um, the auto or the handgun and the rifle and shotgun, it doesn't matter what long gun it is, um, then position school started becoming popular and bringing the gun in, which is, um, I believe it's Portuguese for South. School yes. uh, is. And it's just simply another safe place to put the gun wire in, you know, a stack with officers and like, and it's a good technique. It works really well. I've got nothing against it. I can just consider another variation of the safety circle because mm -hmm. if I'm out with my arms extended ready position, you know, as well as I do, that's a short term. I'm not going to stay out there for, you know, hours at a time. And if I got to cover down a hallway, well, I want to bring the gun back into my body nice and tight with my arms resting. And the school is appropriate, is absolutely applicable to it. What I like about the safety circle concept over the school is I can do it from any position I find myself in, whether I'm seated in a booth, I'm in a patrol car, I'm uh, laying flat on my back, you know, I've been knocked on my feet. I just don't cross my own body parts with my muzzle, and I don't cross good people's bodies with my muzzle. That's the difference in it with Sewell, if you're sitting down, you're crossing your legs, you're covering your legs. There's nothing you're going to do about it. Yep. Uh, so that is a difference. And then, of course, we have the Temple Index now, which is uh, kind of trendy and popular. And again, it's got a place. Uh, the place it's got is if you've got people underneath you, then that's the place to go. I mean, you could you know, argue the concept of the safety circle, which I call more of a mindset than it is a, a technique, is if you've got people around you, maybe that's not applicable to me in. Um, I have an officer from Chicago, uh, PD, and she said, you know, we can't do that. We, we go port arms. And I said, okay, why? She said, because every time we get out of the car in projects, we got little people running all over us and it doesn't look good when we've got a pistol in point of some kid's head or a long gun point of some kid's head. And I went, absolutely. I said, that's a perfect example of where the port arm position or a temple index would be an applicable technique to go to for muzzle discipline. Muzzle discipline is what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, any specific technique. It's just not letting the muzzle gun cross people's bodies. So, yeah. Um, for the audience, if you go to firstpersonsafety.com, that is my business webpage. And on the search terms, uh, search just for ready positions. There's an article that I that I wrote on there about ready positions in which I have uh, a video from the individual who developed the tool that Mark just talked about. I have a video from uh, Dave Spaulding explaining his arc of ready, which is very similar to the whole uh, safety circle concept. And, yeah, I have some yeah, and I have some quotes from uh, both uh, Dave Spaulding and John Hearn. And John Hearn and I are trying to kind of, you know, as much as I love to give John grief on the show, uh, we actually bounce a lot of, well, not just the show. Anytime I have the opportunity to give John grief, I give John grief. Um, you know, we're trying to establish some common language things across our training, and we both refer to safety positions and ready positions as two separate things. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would define a ready position as the firearm is in my hands and I'm prepared to act, but no, the muzzle is not covering any part of the threat. Whereas a safety position is the gun may be in my hands, but I'm not prepared to take immediate action. And I would say like a Sewell position or a Temple Index will be a safety position. They're not ready and positions. It's a, it's a safe way to move with a gun without muzzling. You're, right. Theoretically, yourself, self people. And that's, right. the, that's the concept of the safety circle. You know, 
people get hung up on terminology and get hung up on uh, nomenclature. And you'll, you know, you, you see this with all kinds of techniques, whether it's an empty gun reload, a speed reload, a competition or a, a combat reload, emergency reload. It's the same thing. Your gun's empty and you reload it. So, you know, it's just a matter of terminologies. We would be helpful if we did that, but it isn't going to happen. Um, right. ILFE tried to do that with standardized terms and everybody involved in ILFE, which, you know, at that time was a few thousand instructors wanted their term to be the one that was mm -hmm. universally and not somebody else's. And therefore it was like, you know, we're much like a little hens and we couldn't come up with any consensus that we're going to call anything. So it was abandoned. I mean, it was a great concept to standardize the terms, but yeah. it could happen. So yeah. years ago, the Georgia Sheriff's Association approached one of the uniform manufacturers and said that if all of the sheriff's offices in Georgia all agreed to use the same uniform, could we get a price reduction because we'd all be ordering the same thing that we'd have to stock manufacture different different things and everything and the answer was yes and then it broke down into yeah they couldn't get the sheriffs to all agree on what the same uniform there's no be. way yeah i guess, I guess. you know yeah we're as far as instructors and police officers you know we're all alpha personalities yeah. uh, and you want your thoughts and concepts you know over somebody right. else's and it, it, you know, it isn't it isn't important as long as we teach the concept of it. But like I said, the problem is we have officers who don't follow through, and we have instructors who don't follow through with that, who don't yeah. teach it. Um, I was talking to you on on that chat we were having that a major manufacturer was having a class, and one of their instructors was there, and a good friend of mine who I truly respect was at the class. And he said, he gave the safety brief, he gave those four rules of firearm safety, and then during class, he muzzled the students five to six times during a three-day class himself. And what kind of message does that send? That that's okay. You know, we we think about, you know, you've been to SHOT Show, I've been to SHOT Show, we've both been to gun show. I've, I've, I've never actually been to SHOT. Oh, okay, well, I have. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you've been to a gun shop, and I'm sure you've had some knucklehead. Oh, yeah. 12 gauge and I was kind of looking at it and you go hey you know when he's pointing at you, you go, oh it's unloaded no it's not yeah. okay it's rude right. you know and then you go to a gun show same things happen and if you ever go to the shot show just be expected that you're going to have that that happen on a regular basis because nobody there treats those things like guns at least virtually nobody does I mean one specific example I was at the HK booth and I'm looking at the HK products and I see a guy pick up an MP5. He cocks the action on the gun, points it directly at my chest and pulls the trigger. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and he looks at me like, I'm, I'm what, what, are you some kind of nut or something? I mean, he's looking at me like I'm a nut. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you do that kind of thing? Yeah. Because it's not a gun, and that's the reason why. Because they're at the shop show; they're not guns; they're just props. Yeah. So we can't do that. We need to, we need to be better at it as firearms owners, responsible firearm owners, police officers, firearms trainers. We need to do a better job on this. We could prevent a lot of tragedy and a lot of grief for a lot of people if we could just get that simple concept from Jeff Cooper: you don't point the gun anything you're not willing to destroy. Period. Done. Over. If you do that, you can't hurt somebody. Yeah. So. 
I have a running joke. I have a running joke about Shot Show is that I'm the designated survivor. That if the Shot Show Craig kills off the rest of the firearms industry, I'm the the cabinet member that was kept behind to rebuild the whole thing. There you go. I like it. I like yeah. it. Um, I've been um, there. I've been there, fortunately or unfortunately, every year since 1990. I have not missed a year since 1990. And you know, it's I like going because I want to stay current with the industry. Uh, it's a great way to network. I see people that I am friends with who I never get to see other than that shot. Um, yeah. And we, you know, we play catch up, find out what we all been doing, find out what's different in the industry. So it's got a lot of benefits to it, but um, you know, it is one of those places that you're going to get muzzled and that just drives yeah. me crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I just have this thing about going to events that have a disease named after them. And uh, I just stay away from them. And yeah. I'm not all that. I'm not all that social of a person. So uh, <laughs> I, I'd be the guy that would walk around the floor and then go back to my room and, and like. I'm a social person. I like to interact with folks, and uh, uh, so it is what it is. Yeah, I've been pushing this concept in my training. Of you know, my definition of a ready position is firearm is in my hand. I'm prepared to act. So I consider the one count of a four count draw stroke where you've accessed firearm, all the retention devices are defeated, cover garments out of the way. I actually consider that to be a ready position and I call it holster ready. And, and you know what, you're, you're not, uh, not far off base on that because uh, Daryl Bokey, our good friend, yeah. uh, he yeah. talks about, uh, you know, concealed, concealed ready position uh, for mm-hmm. pocket carry, having your hand on the gun in the pocket. Right. That absolutely is a ready position. Again, the gun's pointing the safe direction. Your finger's off the yep. trigger. The, it's, it's that, let's say, if we can get out of the idea of that it's a technique and put it into a concept, into a mental process, then it doesn't really matter where the muzzle's pointing. But you're absolutely right. I agree with you 100% on that. Because if you think about it, the most difficult part of the presentation, the part that is the most prone for error, the part that is the most time-consuming, is the accessing of the firearm. It's clearing my cover garment. It's retention devices on the duty holster. Where that is the area that we're most prone to have a problem. So, if I've done everything that I need to do for the one and the four count draw stroke, and I've got my access on my firearm, I am prepared to act at that point. If the threat does continue to a point where I have to apply deadly force, then I have significantly reduced my time from holster to first first shot. The state of Arizona, Arizona Post, yeah. uh, that is called the alert position. Right. That's what Arsenal before it is. So the other reason that I that I push this is that situation resolves itself. Well, if I'm in a duty holster, then I just, you know, reconfirm, excuse me, I just activate my retention devices again. If right. I'm a private citizen, I just let my cover garment fall back over my pistol. I and you. now I'm back concealed. And so it's a great way if I have to move through a crowd, say I'm in, I'm at a mall or something like that, and there's an active shooter event, and I've got to get across the mall to my family. I can move across a crowded area that way, be in a position where I can present my firearm more quickly. But say, suppose the boys in blue come running down the hallway with their guns, I can get my hand off of mine in a yep. hurry. Yep. Uh, I can move. I'm not going to inadvertently muzzle anyone because the muzzle's in my holster. It's where it's supposed to be. Um, I would say if you're pumping gas, 
and gas stations are one of the areas that just give me the 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 my spotty sense tingles because everybody's got to go to the gas station i don't care if, what part of good town you live in whatever everybody has to go to a gas station right and on. you're going to run you're going to run into stuff in the gas station parking lot in the grocery store parking lot etc so as you're pumping gas and you start see crowd gathering Sarah's typically hand up under the shirt to the area of the firearm you're not exposing you're not brandishing you're not doing anything but you're reducing your time to presentation of the target if you have to do so but it's also a position where you can get your hands back to completely in a non-threatening environment or a non-threatening manner at an instant's notice should the situation resolve or clarify there are some uh, specific laws in the state of arizona and again i'm going to resource to that because that's what i'm most familiar with uh, of threatening intimidating where putting your hand on your gun uh, when you're not justified could be considered a threatening intimidating. However, there's a new statute, is what I say new, in the last eight years, which has not been really seen in court much as far as I know, that is now the affirmative defense for you to do that to prevent something from happening. So it kind of conflicts with the others. So I think you got to have that discretion that you know you gotta be able to articulate right. in depth as to why you're able to do it and if they somebody calls you on it then it comes down to will the prosecutor agree with you will he right. get to a jury and let the jury decide but there is an affirmative defense now right. being able to put your hand on the gun even though the right. law there's no law that says it's against the law well, the the way i i show this and describe it the fact that your hand is either in or near or on your gun should never be revealed to the right. you know, one like that should, well, you know, it should, you know, it should not be obvious yeah. you know like uniformed officer and yeah. um, but there are a lot of people who open carry and i know we, i don't yeah. know if you're in georgia but we have in state of arizona it's very socially accepted to open carry here yeah. and so yeah. people will be walking in walmart's grocery stores and banks with guns under here fully exposed and you've been yeah. here Arizona, enough you know that so we have a little different circumstance here that if somebody were to put their hand or gun in that circumstance, then they might be running a foul of the law. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it, it's got to it's got to be good common sense discretion. That's right. still going to play. But here's the bottom line: is it's still not killing someone, right? Not shooting someone, and that right. is going to lessen your you know your your things. You may make a mistake. You may get yourself in trouble, but you're not going to go to prison for the rest of your life because you muzzled somebody and you pulled the trigger on the gun when you didn't mean to or vice versa so, so. all right do you have any training tips that you could share with the audience on for, you know for instructors how can you incorporate muzzle discipline etc into your training of students like what kind well, of drills you, you when you do your safety brief if you're following the four rules of fire safety that are almost universal throughout the country. I don't know any police agencies who don't use those, those four rules. Uh, it's or some variation of them. Um, the organization, again, I work for the national organization I work for, they say point your muzzle in the safest direction. That's the way that they word that. The don't point your muzzle anything you're not going to destroy. So just a little different terminology, but it's the same concept. First off, as the instructor, walk to walk. If you're saying that, then walk the walk. Do not muzzle people in your classes. Don't muzzle innocent targets, innocent non-shoot targets in your classes. Set the example and lead by example. Then 
when you're teaching your students this, that, you know, hey, this is why you don't do this. And you talk about the laws um, as to the laws that you can violate if your muzzle does cross people and or if they do make a mistake and do point their gun at somebody that's not justified, then that does it. And then, again, hold them accountable for it. Um, we have uh, drills that we do. The, the, the shoot, don't shoot. I'll give you that example. The, the target discrimination shoot. Every class I teach for our concealed weapon law is not required by the state of Arizona, but I require in my classes that they complete the same target discrimination shoot that police officers have to do. And it is a shoot target. It is a threat target from a ready position to challenge the target um, that you don't shoot. And it is a, you don't draw your gun at all because it's a friendly. And I make them go through that. And it's as simple as I just have graphic targets up with overlays and they've got to turn around and make the proper decision. And my feeling on that is, and I explained to the students is, if you can't make a proper decision on here, on a range with this, why do I want you to have a gun around my family? If you can't make a decision on a paper target with no stress. So that's one way that I do it. And then again, I say, I, I hold people accountable on any moving drills like, um, we ensure that people don't point their models. And if they do, we take corrective action to it. I don't want my students leaving there with thinking that they can point their guns at people that they're not entitled to point their guns at. It's just, it's just to me, it's just common sense, Lee. And I, I don't know what more to say about it than that, because I guess it's, I can almost say it's like it's been inbred into me since I've been a young man um, in my early 20s. I mean, when I was 18, I was young, dumb, and stupid in the Air Force. They didn't teach us any of this stuff. But once I learned it, through uh, Colonel Cooper's teachings, I've been a disciple and a believer in it ever since then. And I strive around my life that way, that I don't do that. And if I do do it, you know, and one thing that it happens, you know, and I talk about this in classes too, you know, the safety service is a good concept and all this stuff works well, but in the, the heat of battle and the fog of war, muzzles are still gonna cross people's bodies. But if you've got your two disciplines in place, trigger finger and muzzle discipline, no bad things are gonna happen. Mm -hmm. okay. Is it going to happen? Yes. Do we excuse it? Do we say, oh, it's okay? No, it's not okay. You made a mistake. And for me, at least, if it happens to me, if something does happen, a muzzle does cross somebody, you know, gun slips like I'm on a table and a gun slips I'm handling and like it does, it actually makes me physically ill to my stomach. I feel very queasy in my stomach, like, oh my God, I am so sorry. You know, this is not, I don't want to do this because it goes against everything I believe in. Yeah, and there's there are some training organizations out there that like to throw out a term called they call it big boy rules, and they want to act like because they're doing something high speed that it justifies that. Uh, that to me is just a red flag. That's that's. I agree. I agree. Um, well, you know, it's not just as trainers we need to do it, but you and I were talking in on that on the, on online about or on the chat rather that. We now have a federal court of appeals decision that says if you as a police officer point your gun at someone who is not a threat, an active threat to you, and you shoot that person accidentally, that you are not uh, able to use qualified immunity, that you have lost that right. In the particular case, in this, an officer shot a uh, owner of a house who was not Part of the warrant for the person in was his son, and an officer 
put a rifle to his head and I guess end up pulling the trigger on it, trying to handcuff him or something like that. And he died. And the court said that, hey, you can be you can be criminally prosecuted for this. I said, that's what happened in the state of Arizona in that instance I talked about. He was criminally prosecuted, but only because we were able to show that it was improper training on our part where the charges dismissed on him. And now we know better. And that was 1986. And this was just starting to come into play. We didn't know better then um, as far as all these things that could cause us to set the gun off. Uh, yeah, rule, rule two was in place. And, you know, it's something that I didn't do, but, you know, police officers did. But now we know it does bad things, can do bad things. Why do we have to? We know better. So let's fix it. As trainers, let's fix it. It's easy. You know, training correctly takes more effort than training incorrectly does. And I think that, that uh, that's one of the things is people, they, they follow the path of least resistance. And they're, they're going to, to check a box on the standard, not truly teach and train people the way they should be trained. I think also if you, you know, you get out into the, the private sector and probably even the, the public sector, I mean, the uh, public sector of uh, government sector, that you've got guys say, well, that doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm a professional. I'm not going to have that. And it can happen to anybody. Um, I've again, I've got so many cases of where this has happened to police officers around the country where they've set guns off and they weren't supposed to. And people have been hit and killed that nobody's going to convince me that this isn't it. And this is it's important to do. If you're going to do this job and you want to do it right, you need to teach people this. In my opinion, and again, I yep. probably will get hate mail on this one that says, you know, well, you're full of crap. Okay, you know what? Live with that. But I know what I teach in my own classes and I know what I believe in and I'm going to do that. When I was a young boy, probably 11 or 12 or so, uh, my father gave me the choice between a horse and a four wheeler, or excuse me, a horse and a three wheeler. This before three wheelers were. Or, or band and I chose the horse because all of my cousins had three-wheelers and dirt bikes and stuff and they were always broken down and they couldn't couldn't ride on their three-wheeler or their dirt bike and so I chose the horse because I how, how am I going to break a horse little did I know and so my father goes and, and finds me a horse and he had grown up with them and um you know, we got her out there in the pasture and he sits me down and he says, I'm going to teach you a rule. And the rule is, is that familiarity breeds contempt. And that was one of his big sayings. Absolutely. And then he would go on to say, just as soon as you think that horse won't hurt you, that's when she'll hurt you. And so every time you go into the pasture with her, you take a lead rope with you, you attach it to her halter and you keep her under control. The entire time you're in the pasture with her, you're doing something with her. And you don't take it off over until you leave. You keep her under your physical control all the time when you're in contact with her. And one day I was fooling around doing something out in the pasture, playing around and scared her. She took off running and ran right over the top of me. Oh, yeah. And I'm not certain if I lost consciousness on that one, but uh, I had to... I was got up, I was covered in mud, I was pretty dinged up, I finally made my way back to the house, and made it inside the house, and laid down on the couch, and shortly thereafter, my father gets home from work, and he walks in, looks at me, and says, 
familiarity break intent, didn't it? What happened? And I told him the story. Whatever he says, all right, now you know why I told you that. Well, I can be a slow learner sometimes. And years later, you know, you know, we're in a hurry to go somewhere to a gathering or event or something like that. And we go down to the barn to feed the horses. And at this point in time, I had a different mare and she didn't come when we called him in. So I had to go look for her. And she, I finally find her. She is as far away as on our property as she can be and still be on our property. And I jumped up on her back and just using the halter to, to steer, start riding her out of the woods because I don't want to walk all the way back to the house. And as we clear the wood line, my father dumps feed into a feed bucket and she sees it. And she takes off running. And right as we get to the barn, the ground sloped down sharply. And when she went down that sharp incline, I came off of her. And I know I lost consciousness on that one. And when I woke up, my father's looking down on me. It's kind of like that old T-shirt of Custer's Last View yep. on the far side with all the yep. turning around looking down. And I look up, my father's standing over me. He didn't ask if I was okay. Anything, he just looked at me and says, familiarity breeds contempt. And he walked away. Don't you love our dads? <laughs> and walked away and left me laying there. Yeah. And, you know, that, that kind of goes back to some, my my. My grandfather, his father had been killed by one of our livestock. And they had had a big thing. My daddy had tried to get him to sell her two days prior to her killing him. And he wouldn't do it because, quote, I can handle her. So that was always my father's big fear with us around this, this stuff. It's like familiarity breeds contempt. And he was what he was trying to say was just as soon as you think something can't happen to you, or you've got to earn it, it won't happen to you because I'm, I know what I'm doing that's when it's going to happen to you if you're not maintaining and adhering to all of the best practices and safety uh, you know safety plans that are out there and that's something I constantly remind myself with every time I pick up a gun and if I catch myself trying to slack off it's familiarity breeds contempt and you know I probably I say probably a lot a lot of professional I mean true professionals have had those incidences uh, where maybe nobody was hurt, but that familiarity did do something that they were not happy with. And I think yeah. we've got a lot of, probably a lot of us there. I won't get into horses. We, I, have, I, I also grew up with horses and I've got my own horse stories. We'll talk on that later because I, I, you'll, <laughs> you'll get a kick out of them. And, uh, I don't ride horses much anymore. I haven't ridden horses at all. doesn't do anything for me, but I rode horses as a kid. And yes, I ended up on the ground a lot. <laughs> Yeah, um, the way I look at it is, I own the greatest horse that ever walked the face of the earth, and nothing else can ever replace him since he's since he's passed on, and so right. there's no need for me to ever try again because I can't approach him. But you know, take it back to firearms. I taught a shotgun class on Thursday, and we call it gun box ready, but this is saying some agencies may call it cruiser ready. I've been trying to teach myself to say storage ready because that would be a more general term, right. and it's the setting up of the shotgun with the empty chamber hammer down on an empty chamber so that the action is un unlocked and you fill up the mag tube and i told the class you know as you're demonstrating how you have to make sure it's clear you're looking in the chamber you're looking on the lifter you're looking in the magazine you work the action you repeat all those safety checks before you point it in the safe direction and, and press the trigger to unlock the action to do the loading and i told the class i said i was teaching shotgun years ago and i told the class to you know empty your gun 
and set it up for gunbox ready, at which point in time, a student promptly pointed his shotgun at the berm and fired off the round that was in the chamber. Sure. Well, he didn't do what I intended for him to do. And I don't think he followed my directions, but he did empty his gun. He did. <laughs> and I'm sure you've been at academy classes where you said, okay, everybody unload your guns. And they yeah. do into the back. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's uh, again, it's it if you if guns are tools, and if yeah. you do get complacent, if you do, um, mm -hmm. it, it's not even complacent. Fatigue can come into play. Yep. Uh, you know, mental attitude that day, and you've had a bad day. Something traumatic mm -hmm. has happened to you. You're not in your best best form. You're not concentrating. These are all when this comes in. But again, if we follow through with that, even if you have a bad thing like, like your student that shot into the bank, yeah. nobody was hurt. Okay. Right. It was a learning experience. It, I'm sure he was taught a very valuable lesson from it and we'll probably never have that incident happen again. So good can come of those if as long as we follow the rules that he didn't have that muzzle point anybody and was treating it like it was a gun and he was not pointing anything he wasn't willing to destroy when he pulled the trigger mm -hmm. that yeah. to me that was a win whether he yeah. meant you know you didn't mean him to shoot the gun or not uh there yeah. and i tell my students the same thing in class you know if we're doing dry practice drills and something happens and a gun goes bang we're supposed to go click as long as it's into the backstop into the target i'm not gonna be mad at them i said the people next to you may be upset about the fact that you know they're that their ears ringing but yeah. The fact is that we're human. We can make mistakes. That's why we strive to not have guns pointed at people that we're not going to destroy. And we try to keep our fingers off the triggers. So you got to do both things in order for you to hurt somebody. Anything, any other comments you would like to make on the whole muzzle discipline topic before we move on? Um, you know, I, again, I think it's just if, if trainers would take it more seriously uh, and walk the walk with it, I think that would be beneficial. Again, we're looking at, our students are looking at us as instructors, we know this, that it's not what we say, it's what we do. You can say it all day long, you can read those rules, but if you don't follow them, your students aren't gonna follow them. So just be a good mentor and be a good example for your students. I think that's where the bottom line would come in on that one. Yeah. All right, in closing tonight, uh... One of the things we're trying to do on this show is to document as much of the first generation uh, training history and evolution as we can, because if we don't do it now, we'll never have that opportunity. And I know you had an affiliation with Mr. Chuck Taylor, and so yeah. I'd like for you to take a little bit of the time and, and, and talk about Chuck Taylor. Sure. Um, the, there was an event that happened in my department in Nebraska that uh, my best friend was shot and killed as a police officer. And he was shot and killed because he wasn't trained properly, as nor was I at that time, even though I had been through the Air Force Academy, because they didn't send us to the academy. And two days before Jim was supposed to go to the academy, he was shot and killed by a 17-year-old kid uh, with a 22 short of all the things in the world that just missed his bulletproof vest. And I was 23 years old. I had never lost a friend at that point. And it was a very traumatic and dramatic uh, influence on my life. And it was very shortly after that I decided I was going to become a fire instructor. So what I did is I already was interested in Jeff Cooper. I followed him for years, reading about him, had all his books. And when Gunsight opened, I saved up my pennies and went to Gunsight 78. 
Uh, so I went there two times, uh, pistol classes, and I came back rifle class. And at that time, Chuck Taylor was the operations manager. And we were, uh, he was there and he was one of our lead instructors. And I was really um, kind of mesmerized about his charisma. He was a very charismatic instructor, uh, very knowledgeable and like. So we got to be friends. And then I came back to Gunsight again, just before I got hired by Prescott. And my intention by going to Gunsight in there is I expressed my interest in becoming a fire instructor. I wanted to work at Gunsight uh, because I thought it was important. I knew that's where I wanted my focus of my career to go to was be a fire instructor. So when I moved down to Prescott, I was intending to move or you know to try to get hired on a gun site down the line. And Chuck and Mr. Cooper parted ways and Chuck was starting his own company. And so he knew me, knew I moved there and said, hey, you want to come work for me? And I said, yes. And so immediately did. And I can never thank him enough for the years that he gave me uh, and what he did. He was a mentor, taught me a lot of how to be an instructor, taught me how to teach, how to shoot better, uh, you know, well beyond my classes of gun sight. Um, and just was a just a really good instructor overall. His uh, big expertise, of course, uh, was uh, full auto weapons. And we're talking about this, you know, before we started the show, that being the junior guy and him having all those full autos, uh, you know, when we got done shooting all of them, somebody had to clean them. And guess who that was? Yeah. So, but I was grateful to that because I learned all there was to learn about all those various handheld automatic weapons, in addition to all the other guns that he had and like. So that being a junior guy in that sense was a good thing. Um, I could never repay him for what he gave to me when we part of company in 92. Um, you know, I, I could never repay what he did for me, but it was greatly appreciated. So. Yeah, I've Chuck was a, a very interesting guy. He wrote several books, you know that. Uh, prolific gun writer, prolific instructor, well respected in the field. So, yeah, um, he was pretty much out of teaching by the time that I found the open enrollment circuit, and so I never had the had the opportunity to become exposed to his material. Uh, I'm familiar with his name. I've read some of his stuff, but uh, just one of the influences that I just didn't have a chance to partake of on a first-hand basis. I was I was blessed. Uh, I, I was blessed to be, uh, I will say, friends with Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper called me by my first name. Every time I saw him, he knew me, knew who I was. Um, I was uh, given the opportunity to teach a uh, class to all the gunsight instructors um, as an instructor school at Gunsight, and while I was there, Mr. Cooper, well into his 80s, made a point to get on the trike, uh, three-wheeler, and ride down to me, and of course, you know, guys down there, you know, that's kind of a, that's the same, but a trike alert, you know, because Jeff was coming, yeah. and so I said, gentlemen, I said, I'm going to put you on break, and I'm going to pay my respects, and so I went over, and we had a great conversation, but I was honored that he took the time to come down and see me. So I had I had him, I had Bruce Nelson as an instructor. And then when uh, I became uh, an officer down in Prescott, he lived in Tucson. We happened to run each, into each other at the SHOT Show, reconnected, had made a commitment that we were gonna get together and really do some good serious training and fun because uh, his lesson plan, I believe it was his lesson plan and my lesson plan were what were adopted by the state of Arizona for construction weapon law. So we had these plans to meet and then unfortunately he passed away um, and we never got to do that. But I got to be with Jeff, got to sit at their house many times, have dinner uh, with he and Janelle, along with my first wife. 
and I was honored. And same with Chuck. I was uh, associated with him for 12 years and best years of my life. I, I can never again repay, repay that debt because uh, he now has passed, of course. Uh, so I can never repay that debt. And it was just an honor. So I was, I was blessed. I studied, I studied a lot of the stuff from those old guys and got to meet several of them. Um, Bill Jordan, I got to meet Bill Jordan. Uh, I wish I'd have gotten to meet Skeeter Skill. He was one of my other idols that I really admired. But unfortunately, he passed away before I had a chance. So I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've met some of the greats out there, too, that uh, you know of. And there's still people out there I still want to get a chance to. I, I, I mentioned this last time. I've never had a chance to take a Tom Gibbons class. I have followed his work for years, and I need to get there. Before he's not doing this anymore, I need to get there. So that's going to be a concerted effort. Um, I'm also good friends with Clint Smith, and he and I were at Gunsight together the first time in 1978. He was a cop in Indiana, and I was a cop in Nebraska, and we uh, did our shoot-off, and I took number two in that class uh, with my 38 Special Revolver, and he took number one with his 1911. So I consider myself pretty, pretty good company there on uh, on doing our shoot-off on that on the hunt. So I, I've taken classes from Clint, and I've uh, taken classes from Louis Arbuck, Again, some of the guys that just are really iconic instructors around. I, I've been a blessed guy all my life for that. So, yeah, Clint Smith's one that I have never been able to cross paths with as well. Uh, just getting getting to where he is in Oregon is just a pretty pretty steep challenge from from Georgia. Well, nice thing is you don't have to go to Oregon uh, in the wintertime, really around Shot Show, just like a little after Shot. He now uh, winters in Las Vegas. Okay. And he has classes down there. And I went up and took my, that's where I took my uh, red dot pistol and went okay. through an intensive class with him, with uh, with my red dot, trying to get to learn it better so I could uh, do that. But yeah, he's a great instructor. Um, probably one of the best instructors out there, in my opinion. If I was going to give, you know, any of the guys that I've seen and known, he's definitely going to be one. Plus, clinisms are just iconic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've seen some of his videos. I've, I bought his revolver video recently, and I see some of the stuff he posts online. I'm, you know, so familiar with with a lot of his material. I just said I haven't had a chance to do anything firsthand with it. Well, like like uh, Clint, Chuck, uh, Rob Barkman. I mean, you pretty much name one of the big names in this industry. Yeah. They've got gunsight roots, just like I do. Yeah, uh, and people do not realize the fact of what. Colonel Cooper did for us in this field. Uh, the, this generation we have thinks this is the way we've done things. This is the way we do stuff. And of course, people got to come up with new ways of doing something because, well, you know, I got to have something new to do. Well, Mr. Cooper, like I said, he's the reason why we've got what we've got. Otherwise, yeah. we'd be standing up shooting one-handed bullseye shooting and yep. uh, you know, not gunfighting. And so yep. people don't understand that debt of honor that these gentlemen, not just Jeff, but that the disciples that went out from Jeff Plant, uh, Chuck, Louis Arbach, Robbie Barkman. I mean, you can name you know, all these people that have gone out. We owe that debt to uh, Jeff Cooper and all, all those guys that started before us. And I don't consider myself that generation or even that class. Um, I do what I can do, but these guys were the iconic fire destructors of that time. I will paraphrase John Hearn and say you know, it was a, it's amazing how much stuff Cooper just entombed that has later been proven to be correct with all of our modern you know testing methods and and cameras and the like just he just and turned it and figured it out without even the real methods that we have available today so 
with 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 uh, he just he I don't I don't know how to describe this with him. He just was able to look at this stuff, analyze it, and then came up with some ways to test it and said, hey, this this doesn't work. And then he never went to make a profit at this. He just wanted to get the word out to the good guys. He yeah. wanted the good guys to win gunfights, and that's what he wanted to do. That's what that's all what Gun Seven had. It was never to make money. It was never to make him famous. It was to get the word out on the modern technique, as it was called then, which you know been out now for fifty plus years, um, and that was what he did. And again, most of the people who were in this field stem from Gun Sight because it was the only school at the time. I mean, Chapman Academy didn't exist. Ray Chapman started after Gun Sight, so a few years after Gun Sight. So there was no real thing but gun sight to start with. And now what are there, 2,000 plus schools around the United States, uh, you know, from everybody out there. So it's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, everybody can get YouTube and Instagram famous now. Yep. Whereas they used to have writing skill and be able to get through an editorial filter. But that's, that's just not the case anymore. Um, I will never be there. I will not be an Instagram or, or um you know, YouTube, YouTube, YouTube University will not be something that I will do. If, uh, like I said, you guys have brought me into this type of uh, venue, kicking and screaming. Browbeating might be the best term. Well, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to do it. I'm, I'm honored. And, you know, it's your show and a couple of other shows. Uh, primary, secondary, and then on duty, off duty. I'm honored to do that. If I can help, and if my purpose for doing this is just like yours, I think, is to help get information out correct. Uh, I want the good guys to win, whether you're a police officer, a military, or civilian. I want the good guys to win, and that's all I care about. And if I can do that, you know, and you make a couple bucks off of it too when I teach, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to make everything I do affordable for students because I remember what it was like to be a young cop going to gun site. You know, it was $300 for a week, which doesn't sound like much. But during that time span, I was making $425 a month. Yeah. It, took, it, took, it took almost a year of saving pennies to get the money to come up to go to gun site for $300 plus all that vacation, ammo, food, and all that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I think is important. Um, so I like passing on. So I appreciate the honor of being able to come and talk to you in this. And I'm glad I was able to help you out. As, as we mentioned, I'm leaving for two months on a two month road trip. And so I'll be gone uh, for a while, uh, traveling around the country with my wife. So time for us to reconnect. I've been doing too much training this last year. <laughs> so, so we're reconnecting. <laughs> I'm getting to know her again. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Hey, can you do too much training though? <sighs> yeah. Yeah, you can. You, you can do it to the point where you're getting burned. Yeah. I've, uh, when I was doing five, six weeks in a row without a break, uh, uh, it, you, you, need, you need the mental break because you forget what you teach. Uh, you know, especially if you're teaching the same class but different places or to different students. Well, did I tell you this or did I tell you this? At least I do. Maybe you don't, but I do that. that I, yeah, yeah. The same with academy classes. I mean, you, you go through an academy class and you're teaching the academy class. And you're going like, okay, uh, did we cover this already? Or was that last class? <laughs> so, yeah. That's why you have lesson plans. You know, we, we, yeah. we talked about that in the instructor thing. You have lesson plans and range drills and the like, so you can document and show what you train so you don't forget stuff. And I think that's, that's another critical part to that. 
but you know, back about original topic on it, it really would, I think, make the world a better place if we could get police officers and civilians to not poke guns at people they don't intend to shoot. I think that would be a, a good thing. The world would be a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, uh, I hope you enjoy your trip. I hope your wife enjoys the trip. We will. And, uh, and uh, thank you for coming on on a Saturday night. I know you were in the Denver airport earlier today. When we were talking, <laughs> hey, can you can you record tonight? And, uh, you know, if you're going to be stuck in an airport, though, the Denver airport is probably the best one to be stuck. It is a good one. I agree with you. Um, my personal favorite restaurant up there um, is a Mexican restaurant in the A concourse, in the second, the top, third floor of the A concourse. And yeah. it's it's really a good restaurant. I make a point to go there every time at Denver Airport. But yeah, there are a lot of good places to go. There. I agree with you. That's not yeah. a bad. So yeah, it, it, because there's places you can actually go sit down somewhere and wait for a flight if you have a long, yep. long layover. And yeah, so that, that's the reason. If I if I have to choose a connecting flight somewhere, if I can get through Denver, I try to do it. Yep, I said I spend a lot of time in Denver Airport, Phoenix Airport, Denver Airport. Um, and Dallas Fort Worth, the three airports I probably live most of my life in when I fly. <laughs> I've not been to DFW. I've not been to Phoenix. I've been to Love Field in Dallas a bunch of times. But, oh, yeah. Uh, and there's nowhere When I was uh, a kid, I flew in out of there when I stationed at Carswell to go home. So, yeah, I remember Love Field. Yeah. DFW was just being built when I was stationed in, uh, in Texas. So yeah. I flew out of there, I think, my last flight out of there before i went to uh, guam was uh was out of dfw it was brand new open then so yeah. I uh, uh, funny airport restaurant story real quick i was in milwaukee i've been up helping tom Gibbons teach a class in wisconsin and he drove me back to the milwaukee airport to fly home and um, i go into this little restaurant there in the, in the concourse and Pizza was the most inviting thing that they had on the menu, and it was, it was called spicy pepperoni. Okay, everybody calls pepperoni spicy. Right. On, a, on about my fourth Diet Coke that I'm having to, to go down to eat this thing, the waiter walks by. I said, sir, I'm sweat coming off of me. I said, sir, I said, uh, you guys got some truth in advertising going on with your menu that's called spicy pepperoni he says yeah we have parents coming here with small children we try to talk them out of it and no 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 they'll be fine <laughs> so, so travelers if you're ever in the milwaukee airport i think it's the sea concourse and you go into the restaurant and it says spicy pepperoni it is indeed it will set you on fire Good safety tip. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. I went to one of the other concourses and bought some Pepto-Bismol before I got on the plane just to make sure. <laughs> uh, I, you know, being from Arizona, I've learned to uh, really appreciate good spicy food, Mexican food. Yeah. And I like peppers now. Um, I, yeah. But you can ask my wife. I didn't used to. Now, I still sweat, but I like them and eat them. Yeah. And I think it's beginning to get older. Your taste buds change and all that stuff, too. So, yeah, yeah I can handle pretty spicy stuff nowadays. A lot of people... <laughs> All right. Well, again, Mark, uh, thank you for bailing me out uh, after a long day of travel. And no uh, th thank you for a great discussion and a great episode. And I hope you have a really good trip. We'll do that. And if, uh, again, I know we've talked about with all the, the gang, if uh, I'm on my trip, I'm taking my computer with me and I will have internet access most of the time. So if there's sure. something comes up, we can certainly get to do this again. So no problem. Sure. Absolutely. So thanks. I appreciate talking to you guys. I, I like getting this information out. If I can do that, like I said, help somebody, sure. then my mission's accomplished. All right. All right.
All right. Well, audience, uh, thank Mark for his time. And we know that, that your time is your most important asset. And thank you for choosing to spend your time with us.